Hi, friends. Each week as I approach this task of teaching, I ask God to show me something that I have been blind to or maybe apathetic to and true to form in bold letters, God showed me something this week. So up until this point, we've been hearing about certain people. Jude's been telling us about people who are subversive and I've been thinking about those people in my general population. And that's not wrong. But this week I realized that there's a tighter focus to Jude's letter uh, and a warning that's more specific. And it shouldn't be surprising or even that hard for me to find because if you open an ESV Bible or your lesson book on page eight where everything is written out, there's a subtitle in the second, in the second section called Judgment on False Teachers. Now that got my attention because everything we're going to be talking about today fits under that subtitle. And I know subtitles are not original scripture, but they are keys and cues to us to help us um, guide our thoughts. So I do want to show you that in verse 12, where we will speak is the very definitive word shepherd. And that is a word we're going to camp on today. You can see it here. We're going to talk about shepherds and sheep. And uh, this letter is to all of us, including us, that those of us who consider ourselves just sheep, both to check ourselves and to beware of others that we might be following or who might be leading and that we might be following in a way that is maybe not attuned or more, maybe blind. There's a word for that, a pop culture word called sheeple. People who follow blindly like sheep. And unfortunately, this we are not as cute as this little picture of my granddaughter, June. And I'll give you uh, an example from my life. In 1982, I was a second semester first year teacher at a public junior high school and I loved my job. I loved working with my students and I loved being in that middle school and I was fresh out of college. So of course I was smarter then than I have ever been since. And what I didn't know though was that schools are political places and that namely there are things like union contracts that I never even thought about. So in my case, second semester, a vote came up for our district to strike. Now, there were issues that I was completely oblivious to. I had no idea or why or no gripes or anything like that. So, but I went to the union meetings because it was required of us, at least I thought it was, and I'm a room full of hundreds of people, wise teachers who were all raising their hands and saying yes to a strike. And so I looked around and I raised mine too. Sheeple. And the next week, while all those informed people were wrangling over the things that would ultimately harm or benefit me, I walked a picket line outside my school in a really cute rain slicker, and I brought homemade cookies. Clueless. And then a photographer came by and took a picture of me smiling with my strike sign like I was at some kind of a birthday party, and it showed up on the front page of the newspaper. Embarrassing. And then when one colleague broke ranks and went into the school and a lot of the teachers were booing, I cannot be sure that I didn't join them. Sheeple. So when we look at today's scripture together, what I want us to pay attention to is the who we're following and why we're following them and if they're worthy of our following. So the um, section that we begin with uh, begins with the pronoun these, referring back to the sections that we read yesterday and the last week that is, and um, those um, are described as people who blaspheme what they don't understand, act like unreasoning animals, act instinctively, and have rebellion on their mind. And so when we approach our scripture in verse 12, we see this reference, these, and that's who they're talking about. So I'll read this to you, even though I know you can read very well yourself and have already read it. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. That's also can be um, translated blemishes. 
These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their, their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So back here, you see that I have underlined the word shepherds. That is not scriptural. That's Cheryl. And I did that because I, I saw this was, a, this was one of the only actual um, uh, human terms that we were using in that section. And it, and it caused me some curiosity. And I looked at the fo footnotes in my Bible, and it sent me back to Ezekiel chapter 34 because much of this thought process is lifted right out of the prophet Ezekiel. So I'm going to take you to the prophet Ezekiel. It's going to, it's going to be a little bit of a long um, scripture. It's a full 10 verses, but I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to read you all 10 verses, and I'm going to ask you as you're listening to me to count how many times you see or hear the words shepherds. Are you ready? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you, not feed, you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds. Hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. And therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. This writing from Ezekiel influenced Jude's writing. I think you can probably hear it. Obviously, it's about the shepherds. 13 references to shepherds in this passage, and none of them are good. So when we see <clears throat> this um, letter from Jude referencing shepherds, and hearing what his inspiration was, we know that there, are, there is a large emphasis on the notion of shepherds. Now, in the New Testament, there are very few literal references to shepherds, only at the birth narrative in the book of Luke. The rest are metaphorical, and there are many. In the Old Testament, there are both. And either way, when they are metaphorically listed as shepherds, it also can be translated as sheep, or as elders, teachers, prophets, chief speakers. We often translate that word as pastor, but I want you to understand that this is broader than just a formal ministry job. You may be a shepherd yourself, 
if you have any kind of spiritual influence, and I hope that means everybody, in the home, in your extended family, in the church body, as a missionary or a ministry leader, or any intentional representation of Jesus Christ in the world at large, even online. If you have a following, you are a shepherd, and it matters how you run your life. There are influencers everywhere in fashion and football and faith, but faith is what Jude is talking about, and that's where we're going to land ourselves. So a word about influencing, it's a big uh, social media word. You're an influencer. You can even make money at it. You are. It's faster and easier now to influence people than it ever was before, and that's because of digital media. We have TVs, podcasts, instant books. We can become a Facebook star or a Twitter star or an Instagram star any given day. And because of that, it's even more contagious. It's always been contagious in fashion and marketing to move trends along, but now it's even more so in morality and politics, and we see that in a lot of activism. And it's more powerful. It can change working conditions like mine at work. It can change cultural norms, the ability to see truth and define it correctly and define words like love and marriage and God even changes the meaning of our language. Needless to say, influence can be used for good or evil. And the challenge for us is to be able to tell the difference because sometimes it's somewhere in between. So let's see if we can be a little less vulnerable to the errors of those who would take leadership over us by searching some scriptures for characteristics of good shepherds of whom Jesus says he is the primary one. And you can read about that in John 10. So let's talk about some leadership characteristics. Acts 3 may be the best and most uh, succinct checklist for those who are capable of leading. These are like the qualifications for leadership that of the first generation, of the next generation of disciples. So in Acts 2, we, we have the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the church has now grown, and there's a need for more managers, specifically to manage the distribution of food. And so Peter gives the instruction to find seven people who fulfill these qualities, and none of them have to do with food handling. The first one is a man of good reputation who lives honestly and honorably in his own community and his home. The second is that he be filled with the Holy Spirit, having a mature relationship with Jesus that is characterized by a dependence on God. Now, mind you, we're right out of Pentecost. We're right out of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we want this litmus test to be tight. And the third is that he is wise, particularly wise in the ways of leadership. So all of these are important, of course, for the task at hand and probably for well beyond food distribution. But in Peter's own life, we want to look at his reputation. If that was primary, remember, he's the guy that denied Christ. But it's Jesus' relationship with him that transforms his reputation to what it is. So a relationship with Jesus matters even more than your past reputation. And this is something that some of us grapple with. But when we come to Christ, our reputation is made new and we have an offer to join him in this new lifestyle. And it's very important to have uh, good management and business skills that you can apply to your work anywhere. But it was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that changed Peter from a cowering, fearful, denying disciple to a bold, proclaiming leader of the church. It's the Holy Spirit which is the fuel for any of these attributes. So being a good person, having good leadership skills is really nothing in an eternal sense without the engine of the Holy Spirit. So I know this keenly because when I have, when I have been in positions that I'm way over my head, 
It is my utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit that has enabled me to have multiplied my time and my resources to overflowing. Teaching is one of those times. I come with great trepidation. But I'm going to tell you another story. My mom lived in Arizona after my father died. Um, she was alone. She had kidney disease, which led to high blood pressure, which led to fear of strokes and other things. So I would check on her often. So I flew out there one day in 2018. And when I arrived there, I saw my mom, and she didn't look anything like I remembered. Her appearance was very unusual. She was always neat and tidy and cute. Things were out of order. Her behavior was odd, too. The way she understood time, the way she looked for me in the backyard before I came into the house at all, the amount of medications and when she was taking them, and the thought of her driving a car. I knew within five minutes that she was in danger there, and I was going to have to make a lot of big life changes. And I was going to become the shepherd of my mother, the leader of my mother, a role I never wanted. I happened to be there around Easter, and I was preparing to teach from the book of Psalms. So I had taken my study materials with me and thought, I'm going to have a lot of warm time in the sun to be looking this over, and I'll be ready to teach when I get back. But that was not to be, because uh, within a few days, I realized that the Psalms that I was thought I would be preparing to give to others were 100% for me. I clung to those psalms in my sleeplessness and in my worry and when my mom napped and when she came and she went like a, a, a thirsty man in the desert and it was living water to me it the water overflowed and here's what happened as a result of it the holy spirit was able to do a work in me and with me and with my time and with my existing conditions that i have still no idea how it happened in less than two weeks we celebrated palm sunday and then had an Easter party, and then celebrated my mom's birthday. And then I threw a going away party for her because I had listed and sold her house for $1,000 over asking in one day. I was able to sell her car to a neighbor who bought it at full blue book price and needed it only the day after we left. I'd sorted and packed 30 years with her belongings and hired movers and saw them come and take them away. And I bought tickets for us to fly home together even I was amazed because when we left after nine days, all of that had been done. And I knew we would never come back there. And my heart was really heavy for her and her friends who were grieving her. But the good shepherd, the good shepherd led us back beside still waters and was our peace, inexplicably was our peace. So those characteristics of a good shepherd matter, particularly being connected to the Holy Spirit. So now I want to look at some of the characteristic behaviors of a good shepherd and what he should display. So here we go. Here's, here's those three qualities I mentioned. I forgot to move my uh, screen. You will have these on your handout, so that's good. And here's a, a comparison and contrast to what Jude tells us an ungodly shepherd does and what we find as information from elsewhere in scripture about a good shepherd, primarily starting with John 10. But there is no discussion about a good shepherd that can eliminate Psalm 23, which says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So here we have proof that God, as a good shepherd, provides. And we have the understanding that God protects. Acts 20 says, be careful, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, Paul says, or Peter says, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And a good shepherd produces, because let's face it, sheeping <laughs> is a business. Sheep are not pets, they're livestock, and their multiplication matters. And we see that blessing of multiplication in the book of Genesis and several other times in Scripture that indicates that there's a blessing on the family. But Jesus admonishes us to judge people by their fruit, or shall I say their produce, their productivity. And he shames a fig tree that doesn't produce. And he talks about the production of Fisher being his disciples becoming fishers of men. And we see that in Acts 2 when, again, Peter has with the help of the Holy Spirit, um, exhorted to the crowd, and 3,000 people came that day. A good shepherd produces. And a good shepherd disciplines and directs, sometimes with a stick. I don't like the word discipline that much, but when I think about it is the word disciple, I feel a little bit better about it. And a disciple is a learner. So a good shepherd is teaching, and sometimes he has to use some methods we don't really like. So Hebrews 12, 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I think we can agree with that if we've been a parent. Psalm 23 reminds us that he is leading us in paths of righteousness. And 1 Timothy 3.2 says we must be above reproach and able to teach. So teaching and directing is important. But the shepherd uses a stick and a crook for those reasons, and sometimes it doesn't feel as good as we'd like. But it's an important part of shepherding. And finally, a shepherd unifies. And what does he unify around? Himself, the good shepherd. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says, And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We can be united around a lot of things these days. We can be united around style or mode or affinity, but the Good Shepherd doesn't unite us about things that, um, that we disagree on together. He, he unites us on the thing we agree on together. He unites us in Christ. Now, Jude knows all this because he's been alive during Jesus' time, and he is Jesus' brother, as we know. And all of these qualities are in direct contrast to Jude's list. So we can read these. You've seen them in Scripture already. As a good shepherd provides, an ungodly shepherd doesn't provide. He's selfish, greedy, gluttonous, feeding himself, eating, even eating the sheep themselves. He protects. An ungodly shepherd does not protect. He is without concern for the flock or a fear of reprisal. He does not produce. He has, there's clouds without rain, fruitless, dead, and uprooted trees. And he does not discipline and direct. Here we see this. These are wild and aimless and wandering times under an ungodly shepherd. If you see chaos, that's an ungodly shepherd. And he unifies. He does not unify. He actually divides. And um, Jude puts it this way, casting up shame, malcontent, boastful, picking favorites and hard talk. And this is the one I think we can get stuck here even as believers. We can, we can spend a lot of time being discontent and casting up shame and miss the unity of the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not want us to waste our time doing that. Now, wouldn't it be easier if those who, who were going to lead us astray, these ungodly shepherds, had maybe long handlebar mustaches and black capes or 
they were greedy and they had those dollar signs in their eyeballs like a cartoon, but they don't. They look like sheep, maybe in wolves in sheep's clothing, but they look like sheep. They look like shepherds. They look like pastors or authors or evangelists or teachers that we trust. They look like skilled business per people that know what they're doing, people we think we know, people we think we vetted, and often we've missed the clues. So this is a warning to us. But um, there's a biblical writer named J.C. Riley, and he had this quote, and I thought this, this summed it up. You know, Jesus knew what was in a man, right? He said, Riley, the best of men are only men at their very best. The best of men are only men, and I would add women, at their very best. So God knows and judges better than we do. We heard in our last scriptures how the archangel did not assume to judge. He left the judgment to God. But there is leadership accountability, and there certainly is discernment on our part. And I think we need to be able to recognize an ungodly leader better. Do you know this one? There's a high accountability for, for leaders, and this is a leader named Elizabeth Holmes. Maybe you're watching her in the news. Um, her name is synonymous with false leadership. With her artfully deepened voice, this is how she talks, and a Steve Jobs wardrobe and a notable feminine charisma, she was able to convince investors that she had invented a groundbreaking new machine that would change the world and make them money. Industry leaders were mesmerized by her prototype design and hailed her as the next genius. Her company, Theranos, had made a finger prick blood testing machine that was supposed to replace all the cumbersome lab testing and put the control and the profits in the hands and coffers of local pharmacies and, of course, their share owners. And so they invested in her. But the machine was really only a prototype, never worked properly, and in order to cover it up, they had rewrote thousands of tests that were supposedly being um, um, evaluated in her machine to an, a standard lab. And when the truth came out through the, through the um, media, Walgreens sued Theranos and settled out of court for $25 million. So much for making money. But this week, Elizabeth Holmes is now facing criminal charges and up to 20 years in prison for this kind of lying. So for all of us, especially those of us who lead at high levels, there is a high cost of accountability. I want to talk to you a little bit about the warning that Jude gives us in e from Enoch. Um, you know, he, he quotes Enoch, and we know this is an extra-biblical book, but we don't know why he quotes it or where it comes from. So I'm going to give you what we know about him. He is the seventh generation of man. So if you count down from Adam, Adam being one, Enoch is number seven. He is the father of Methuselah. We know this from all from Genesis 1 through 25. I should have that up there. We know that he did not experience physical death, and in Hebrews we find out that he didn't experience physical death because he walked with God. God was pleased with him. There's only one other person, Elijah, who is written as not experiencing physical death. This little corner is all we know about him because that's all that's written about him in sacred scripture. When Jude references him, he is obviously referencing an extra-biblical source. The question is, where did it come from and who wrote it? So here's some of the dilemma, and I'm kind of into this. Jude wrote A.D. 55, 60, somewhere in there, and he's quoting an author who wrote, time-stamped, somewhere between B.C. 200 and as late as A.D. 200. So he might be quoting someone who wrote a book after he was alive, so that's confusing. But Enoch himself was alive more than 2,500 years ago. 
So was this oral tradition? Well, it, it, it could have been oral tradition. It would have been a lot to memorize over thousands of years. And then we say, how would the letter from the real Enoch 25,000 years ago have survived and then without being sacred scripture? And how would it have survived and then been written so many hundreds of years, thousands of years later? And again, how would Jude have had that knowledge of that oral tradition at that point and how accurate would it have been? Those are good questions. The reason the point is kind of moot is because what he says of Enoch jives with other scripture. And I think that's a good standard for us. If we get a source and it seems to have information, if we can't vet the source as well, we can at least compare it to scripture and decide if it jives with scripture. And our author last week in her lecture gave us other times when he told us that thousands of angels are judging us. And so the quote from Enoch finds its validation, not so much in the book itself, which apparently you can buy on Amazon and, and Christian publishing, um, but more from the fact that it resonates a truth that, that um, Jude knew. Now, there is some supposition for at least one Bible scholar who says, Jude could have known this truth from Enoch by a spiritual revelation from that many years ago that came directly from the Holy Spirit and was put into scripture. That's possible that it didn't have to go through any human means at all, that God gave him that information. There is a precedent for that. Moses um, had a couple of Egyptian slaves that were not named in the Old Testament that Paul, when he wrote about them, named them. That's information he couldn't have known from scripture. So there is some precedent, but it's neither here nor there really when we understand that the point is still taken. Now, who are these people over here? Well, these are people, these are gonna be our heroes. We're gonna save that for just a minute. I want you to know um, that uh, there are certain, there are, there are great warnings for those of us who are teachers. And, and I, I, I struggled with this a lot this week, to be quite honest. This is not a new to me, but there's a high level of accountability for those of us who would stand up here and, 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 and try to teach from the scriptures and, and, and do so at our own risk. Um, James 3, 1 warns us, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that he, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Yikes. Uh, Matthew 18, Mark 9, Luke 17, all have this verse in there. Whoever causes one of these little ones, and let's say sheep, to believe in me to sin, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. <sighs> these positions of influence hold a high office with high consequences for failure because the danger is real. But there is some hope behind me. This is an example of an Icelandic sheep. It's called a leader sheep, really, leader sheep, one word. Highly intelligent, purebred animal that can lead a flock home during difficult conditions. They have an unequaled willingness to run or walk ahead of ordinary sheep. And, when, and there are many stories in Iceland, in Iceland that of leader sheep saving lives during the fall roundups when blizzards threatened shepherds and flocks alike. The sheep are leading the shepherds. Sometimes this is going to be necessary. And here's just a side note, girls. When last counted, 87.3% of leadership were female. So 
Let's ask God to equip us uniquely today with the ability that these leadership have to see through the storm of ideas and influencers and away from the temptation and danger of following incorrectly or being followed inappropriately and past our own ignorance and greed toward a path that leads to righteousness. Sometimes we want things so badly that we're willing to believe anyone who tickles our itching ears. So we're going to finish here with this prayer. And um, ladies, I trust that as we wrestle these hard issues, um, that God will give you new insights because you have willingly put yourself out there to hear them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for re revealing things to us that we have not seen. We trust that you will continue to open our eyes to that which we, we need to know. But not only looking at others, looking at ourselves and the plank in our own eye. Where, Lord, is our doctrine light? Is our attention to your word failing? Our, our uh, devotion to you weak? Lord, draw us to keep our eyes on you, the good shepherd, the one who unifies us. Help us to see quickly and to confess our ungodliness that has led to bad habits that don't promote or glorify you. And I thank you, Lord, that despite the stain of sin that is on me, you have washed me clean. And the judgment that would come from the error of my ways, confess to you, is pure before you. And, and you see me as you see your son. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our ultimate good shepherd. I love you. In your name we pray. Amen.